Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles presented by Easton Roofing, and it's a pleasure to revisit our winter conversation with Denny Matthews, the longtime voice of the Kansas City Royals. He has been the Royals announcer since their very inception, and he has been the lead announcer since 1974, well over 50 years of entertaining Kansas City Royals fans during the summer. He's a guy who never really has sought out the spotlight. He has done a little bit of work outside of Kansas City Royals broadcast, but mainly he has been our voice of the summer. A fine athlete as a young man as well himself. He went to Illinois Wesleyan University. The fact that he played college football without ever playing high school football, and the fact that he broadcast his very first baseball game in the major leagues are just a couple of the interesting facts about a very interesting man. He's a great storyteller with a wry sense of humor. His low-key and meticulous broadcast style has brought us into the inner workings of a baseball game, sometimes criticized a little bit for not getting quite as excited as he should. That doesn't bother me one bit. He's always been a friendly man, but as I said, somebody who has not sought out the spotlight, not been somebody who did a lot of speaking in the offseason. He does his baseball games and then takes his time, plays a little hockey, and does a whole lot of other things that he enjoys very, very much. He's been an integral part of our summer times for over 50 years here in Kansas City. He's a great storyteller and he has a great story to tell. And that story comes your way next on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing as part of the Reasonably Irreverent podcast series. And this one is fun, just like, well, all of them are. Denny Matthews, coming up next. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Hey everybody, Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. For almost 10 years, we've been a locally owned and operated family business. At Easton, we work on every job with one thing in mind, integrity matters. I grew up in central Kansas, was raised on the values of respecting hard work. We run our company every day on that value set. At Easton, we always make decisions based on the ethical, right thing for the customer. That's what integrity means to us. So if you have any questions about your roof, give me and my team a call, 913-257-5426, Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Time to spend a few minutes with my good friend Jeff Dillon from Dillon's Heating and Cooling. And Jeff, what differentiates your company from others in the industry? Plain and simple, we're honest. We have integrity and we're going to do things right the first time. There's way too many companies out there that lie, cheat, hide things from the homeowner or customer. And we're not about that. It's kind of funny sometimes. I actually am so honest with some people, it kind of surprises them. But sometimes it's good for business, sometimes it's bad for business. But ultimately, it's the kind of business that I want to run is an honest one. And that family way of treating things is part of your slogan. And it's also part of one of your great features that you offer to customers. Our slogan is like family. Our most popular maintenance plan is called the family plan. 
It's very similar to a lot of ones out there. The little tweak that we do to ours, 1% off for every two years, they have a continued maintenance plan with us. If they have a maintenance plan for 10 years and we give them 5% off, no questions asked. You can find out more about Dylan's Heating and Cooling and all their great range of services at dylansheatingandcooling.com. That's Dylan's with an S. The phone number, 913-214-1343. Let's have a brief conversation with David Schmidt from Pro Millennial. David What differentiates you from other financial organizations? I would say the passion we have for seeing our clients succeed is probably paramount to what we do here. There's no joy greater than watching a client accumulate wealth. I had a client that I've had for many years was able to buy his dream warehouse. Nothing too extravagant, but we had a savings plan in place and was able to see him fulfill his dreams. And what else motivates you in this industry? Well, lately, it's been finding out inconsistencies in the marketplace, ferreting out some more than questionable ideas out there that what we're seeing with Bitcoin and a few of these other cryptocurrencies right now. I'm in the opinion where if it's untraceable, it really needs to be regulated in a big way right now. To get more information and advice from David, visit promillennial.com or call 816-221-7775. That's 816 221 7775. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Danny, you were born in Jacksonville, Florida, but moved early on to uh, Bloomington, Illinois. What are your very first memories of being little Denny Matthews? I don't remember anything about Florida because I was (laughs) taken away by my parents who grew up in Illinois, so I was there six weeks, so right, there you very go. few memories of Jacksonville. <laughs> I would think not. <laughs> so what are your first <laughs> memories of Bloomington? Well, my dad was in the service. He was in the Navy, and he came back after about a year, and of course I had no idea who he was or why he was there, but uh, lived with my mom, my grandparents, her mom and dad, and uh, I remember those flashes of of memory from oh probably three years old maybe two and a half three three and a half my grandfather worked on the railroad and he was uh an engineer in the yards in Bloomington and every once in a while my grandmother would take me down to the train yard and he was a switch engine engineer and he would come across the tracks pick me up take me back to the uh, engine he'd hand me up to the fireman in the uh, cab of the diesel and I'd ride around with him for an hour and of course when you're four five six years old why uh, that's the big leagues absolutely the case Uh, when did you uh, start to get your interest in sports well when my dad came back from the service and again I'm four four and a half he was a he was a basketball and baseball player, <clears throat> excuse me, at Illinois State University. In fact, he was the first All-American baseball player at Illinois State University and uh, had a chance to sign with either the White Sox or the Cincinnati Reds. But then something called World War II came along, and right. that kind of took care of that. And obviously he was a very good athlete, so he passed some of that along to him was uh uh, so you're, uh, was it uh, a natural thing for you? Uh, did you like it? Did he, uh, I, I'm not say force you, but uh, did he encourage you? Yeah, very much. Baseball, basketball, everything in season. <clears throat> and uh, three younger brothers, and he taught really all four of us uh, 
how to play the game, especially at baseball. Baseball and basketball were his two specialties, and uh, so all four of us grew up in a sports atmosphere, so to speak, and uh, he was very supportive. He was, uh, as you say, and uh, I wish I could have seen him play. <laughs> right. It was impossible, but uh, uh, a good athlete to play uh, at, a, at a college of that stature in both baseball and basketball and really be praised for his baseball acumen and ability. Both of your parents worked for, worked for State Farm Insurance. Uh, how would you describe their relationship? Well, they met. My dad grew up in Danville, Illinois. He came to uh, Bloomington Normal for college at Illinois State. At the time, it was Illinois State Normal University. Bloomington Normal are twin cities separated right. by only a street. And uh, much like State Line here in our area, but uh, they met when he was in college. My mom was, I think, three years younger and uh, married, and I was the first of four to come along, all boys. But uh, they had a great relationship. Uh, my mom was always very blunt and uh, to the point. My dad was uh, stern enough but very supportive. They both were supportive, obviously, of all of our endeavors, and uh, it was uh, really a a very enjoyable childhood, I would say. Obviously, it's a college town. That's a pretty big school. Probably, obviously, not quite as big then. But uh, what was uh, what was it like growing up uh, in the '40s in Bloomington? Well, Illinois State was in Normal. Illinois Westland, where I ended up, was in Bloomington, and again, separated only by a boulevard and. Uh, a city, Division Street, of all things. Someone very cleverly named it Division Street to separate the two <laughs> little towns, and it's uh, <laughs> pretty pretty creative, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, Illinois Wesleyan, Illinois State had a great rivalry in all sports. Then subsequently, into the '60s, when I was involved, uh, a year after my final year of football at Illinois Wesleyan, where they didn't play football anymore. Illinois State was about twenty six, twenty seven thousand, and Illinois Westland was still about thirteen hundred students. So there was quite a difference. But they still played basketball and very competitively, and to this day still compete in baseball. You did something pretty darn unusual. Is you played college football and you didn't even play high school football? Is that correct? That is correct. I was uh, I played baseball and. And basketball in high school, but I just felt like I was too small to play football. And as I got into college, I became very good friends with uh, Vic Armstrong, who was the quarterback at Illinois Westland. And uh, by that time, I had kind of grown out of my childhood in a sense, and I was, oh, 5'10", 170. And I used to watch college and pro football on TV, and I always like to watch the wide receivers. Illinois Westland never had a wide receiver offense until Vic, who had a great arm, was uh, the quarterback. And he and I worked together uh, at State Farm Employees Park in the summer. We had our summer job, three-month job, and we'd talk and play catch with the football. And uh, he told me one day, we're going to go to a wide receiver offense, and when we play catch, you catch everything. And why don't you come out? And in the back of my mind, oddly enough, before he had even said that, I had thought that, that it might be fun, it might might work, who knows. Like you said, I never played 
high school football, so there was no basis of comparison. I had no idea what it would be like. But um, I did went out, and uh, Dick and I had a great relationship. He finished, I think, 11th in passing. I was 8th in pass receiving, small college, and uh, it was uh, was a good tandem. It worked out. It was great fun, and uh, I still could play baseball, and uh, I started to broadcast some sports on the local radio station in between football and baseball seasons after my or during my sophomore year in school at in college how would you describe yourself as a baseball player uh, pretty good i i was um left-handed infielder second base was my position i worked out after my first year in college with the San Francisco Giants farm team in Decatur, Illinois, Gene Thompson was the area scout for the Giants at the time, and he scouted our games in the, in the central part of Illinois, and he invited me to come down to uh, Decatur in August uh, of the summer and work out, which I drove down in about an hour drive and uh, worked out, and there was another player there working out who went to school in Decatur, St. Teresa High School Decatur, uh, who later became a big leaguer. His name was Del Unser, who right. was a, a good outfielder, mm-hmm. played in the big leagues for a number of years. Yep. And they worked both of us out, and uh, Del subsequently signed a professional contract. I went home, and, and Gene had invited me to come back and work out. This was in mid-August of the summer, and I had decided to play football. That was my sophomore year. I was going to go out and play football or try for the first time. And my dad said, well, he said, look at it this way. You're all jazzed up about playing football, so it'd be silly to sign there at the end of their minor league season anyway, and if you play baseball at Illinois Westland and you're good enough, why, in three years from now, why, if you're still you know, a decent player and they think you are, why, you might have that chance. So... That was fun. That was an interesting. There were two guys that I worked out with who were playing for the Giants farm team that year. It was he was an outfielder pitcher, great big guy named Ollie Brown, who was mm-hmm. a good big leaguer, and then Tito Fuentes, who was a, a longtime big league infielder. And he and I worked out together at second base. We had no idea, obviously, that. He was going to be in the big leagues eventually, but the one thing that stood out for me working out with Tito was he had about 112 pounds of chains around his neck, <laughs> and when we were fielding ground balls, those things were jangling and <laughs> rattling around. I'm thinking, well, how can you feel ground balls with all that jewelry around you and all those noises? And uh, he turned out to be pretty good, and I never did get any neck chains. So. <laughs> your, your college uh, sort of... It, uh, mate uh, in the middle infield was Doug Rader, right? Is that correct? Yeah, for two years, uh, Doug played short, I played second, and he signed with the Houston Astros after his sophomore year. And, uh, yeah, he was a terrific college player, obviously. Big, tall guy. He was kind of skinny at Westland, but uh, he sure grew into that body. He was about 6'3", could run well, uh, great arm, and uh, a good hitter. I know we played over at Notre Dame one Saturday afternoon. He got hit on the wrist, and it broke his wrist. So that was uh, kind of a blow. But uh, 
yeah, they were all over him. All the scouts from different teams uh, knew all about him, and uh, it was just taken for granted that after that second year at Westland, he was going to sign with the uh, Astros. So you mentioned that between playing football and uh, ba- uh, football and baseball, you spent some of those uh, s- short months uh, doing some broadcasting. How did that develop for you? It, what I know. You know, in reading a lot of stuff about you that uh, you just love listening to the radio and, and being in the Midwest, you could hear all kinds of different broadcasts, particularly at night. And uh, was that something that, was there ever an inkling that that was something you wanted to do or did that develop in college? Yeah, that came in college because I think when you're in high school and even into college, you're more concerned with playing than you are with broadcasting. I mean, that, that was well down on the list probably, but uh, the athletic director, at Illinois Wesleyan, Jack Hornberger was very good friends with the sports and news director at WJBC, the very good local radio station in Bloomington. And uh, Jack told Don Newberg that uh, he thought that I might be interested in broadcasting. And there were four high schools and the two colleges in the Twin Cities at the time, and they did a lot of basketball, high school and, of course, the two colleges. And they didn't have a large staff, and they were always looking for two or three people to kind of fill in on the uh, on the basketball broadcast. They might even have as many as three games in one night. They'd do one live and then tape record the other two, play those after the live broadcast. And uh, so uh, Don Newberg came out to West Lynn, and we sat down, and he said, uh, Jack Hornberg told me that you might be interested in broadcasting. And I said, well, yeah, I, yeah, that'd be fun, I guess. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> about it. And uh, but you're right. I used to listen to all the all the baseball games, and I'd flip around during the nighttime hours. And uh, in that locale in Central Illinois, we could get a lot of the broadcast. But WJBC, the hometown radio station, was a cardinal affiliate, had been for a while, and to this day they still are. And so it was Jack Buck, Harry Carey, Joe Garagiola for a couple of years. Uh, and I, hot summer night, I'd play by the radio there in the living room and and just listen to the games. And uh, at really no thought of, of broadcasting, but uh, later on I realized that I was getting a pretty good education. Subliminally, I guess you could say, uh, just listening to those guys describe baseball. And so it was almost like having a college course, I think, laying there and listening to the games. I have to do any homework. That was one good thing about it. But uh, I think I was learning some pretty good lessons from some pretty darn good broadcasters. And we could get the Chicago guys too. So uh, yeah, it was uh, it was good. We were in a good location for that. When you finished college, you still did have a, an opportunity to play professionally, uh, but uh, at this point, uh, you had to make a, sort of a life decision, I guess, and it's a funny story eventually that Buddy Blattner told you that you actually had a better chance to play professional baseball than be a major league announcer because of the amount of jobs, but how did you decide to make the decision at that point in time and, and maybe not pursue uh, professional baseball, at least for a little while? Well, I, by that time, I was pretty enamored with broadcasting, and I figured... Uh, you know, that might be a kind of a cool job if you could broadcast for a Major League Baseball team. I had no idea. I was so naive that there were, you know, hundreds of guys trying to do the same thing, I guess. But uh, as luck would have it, why the Royals were born in 69. And uh, I went back to work uh, at State Farm after I got out of college for a few months and then had a chance to go over to WMBD Radio and TV in Peoria 
which is a bigger market and only about 40 minutes from Bloomington. And then from Peoria, after I spent a few months there, I went down to St. Louis and did some TV on the weekends at KMOX TV. And uh, while I was there, I got the job with the Royals. So that was uh, kind of the, the quick transition from college to State Farm for a few months to I was still doing part-time at WJBC, but then I went full-time at, in Peoria, full-time, well, not totally full-time. I did weekends at KMOX TV before uh, coming out to Kansas City. The story of you getting that job is a pretty remarkable thing, uh, including the fact that uh, you had a very creative way to send your packaging of your interview, and also the fact that you really hadn't done an actual baseball game when you did some recording when you did the recordings that would eventually net you a major league job. Yeah, at the time, Danny, the uh, the booths in both Wrigley Field, Comiskey Park, Chicago, and in uh, Bush Stadium in St. Louis, there wasn't cable TV or anything else, and. Most big league clubs at that time did radio only, and once in a while maybe weekend TV games, and so there were a lot of empty booths. And uh, WMBD in Peoria, as well as WJBC in Bloomington, both being Cardinal affiliates, well, I had that in, and I wrote the Cardinals and asked them if I could bring a, a friend and a tape recorder down to uh, St. Louis and uh, and do a game as I was auditioning or going to for another job. And... Uh, they said, sure, come on down. So my friend Charlie Brannon and I went down to St. Louis and uh, set up the recorder, and I did a game and then uh, took it home, listened to the whole game, and then I took, I don't know, two or three half innings, which I thought maybe were representative of the way I would broadcast the game. I did an inning where there was a couple of runs scored. I did an picked out an inning where nothing happened and I had to kind of fill in and then another half inning which I thought might be okay and then I sent that to them in a package the people that were screening the applicants for the number two job with the Royals and uh, that's how I started that process. Why don't you tell the audience uh, what the creative way that you uh, tried to get some attention with the package that you sent to them? (laughs) It's pretty corny (laughs) but it worked. And it was a, kind of the brainchild of a friend of mine who lived in Peoria. And he said, uh, you know those little metal trays when you go into a bar and the waiter, waitress will bring a beer, whatever, your you know, chips over in a, in a tray that has, in this case, Schlitz Beer was the number one sponsor for the Royals. And so I, I asked the local bar if I could have their little tray. They had more than one. And uh, it had Schlitz logo on it and uh, appropriately enough. And uh, so I took my tape and I put a picture and and my resume on the tape, wrapped it up and I had a little note about I, I hope you don't think this is this is really corny. I don't think don't think I'm a Bush B-U-S-C-H, leaguer, meaning a minor leaguer. <laughs> Don't think I'm a Bush leaguer for having done a Cardinal game, but this is my last pitch for the Kansas City Royals job. Isn't that something? Wasn't that great? <laughs> well, like you say, it worked. <laughs> but- yeah, it did work. I don't know, but then I had a, I had an interview with Buddy Blattner. They had, he told me at one time they had about right around 250 applicants 
and uh, for the job, and they kept whittling them down through the summer, through the fall, and then now we're into the late fall. And he called and he said, uh, "Would you come down to St. Louis and and we'll sit down?" And he had a real nice finished basement with a little bar, and he said, "We'll have a." some pizza and just sit around and chat. And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And he said, why don't you come down around, get down here around four. It's about a two and a half, three hour drive from Bloomington. He said, get down here about four and we'll just go down to the basement and have a, you know, chat. Sounded good. So I told my dad, I said, all right. And he was, you know, excited about it. Who wasn't? I was kind of thrilled, but I had known about Buddy Blattner. Obviously he was a national broadcaster of Mm -hmm. no ill repute. And, uh, so I told my dad, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'll meet down there about four. And then I figured we'd talk for, you know, two or three hours. And I said, I'll be home by 10 and went down and we sat there and we talked and we talked and we talked and it was four, four thirty in the morning. And buddy said, well, I said, well, I guess I better be going. He said, well, he said, why don't you stay here and he, you know, get up in the morning and, and drive back. And I said, no. I said, I'll, I'll go back. So we talked for a while longer, and then about 7 in the morning, I finally sun was up, and uh, I jumped in my car and made the two-and-a-half, three-hour drive back to Bloomington, and I pulled into the driveway. My dad was doing something in the garage. I got out of the car, and I said, I told you I'd be home by 10. <laughs> <laughs> Only it was a.m., not Saturday or not Friday night. You must have felt like you had a pretty good chance at the job then if you spoke to the man for 12 hours or more than that. Yeah, yeah, we just hit it off, and uh, I obviously admired him, and he was a great storyteller, and I'm not sure I said all that much. <laughs> I just kind of sat there and listened to some great stories, and we had some laughs, and uh, it was a, it was an evening, of course, uh, <laughs> into the wee hours of the morning I'll never forget but you're right I had a really nice feeling about it when uh, when I got home on that Saturday morning and then Tuesday night why they called from the uh, agency wasn't buddy but uh, they called from the agency and the guy said I guess you know you got the Royals job and I said no I didn't know that but thanks for telling me that's <laughs> good to know yeah absolutely. And, uh, about, yeah about two weeks later I came out and uh, signed the contract with the Royals, and uh, away we went. The rest is history, as they say. Uh, do you have? Did, did you at the time have any sense how amazing it was that you got that job over all no. those all, all those contestants at your age in those circumstances? It, it's amazing. Yeah, and no, I didn't. I had I had no clue. Like I said, I was pretty naive about the whole thing, but. Uh, I just kind of did it on a lark. I thought, well, make a tape. And uh, but Buddy said, I asked him later when we were working together, and you know we really knew each other. And I said, why did you pick me? I know there were a lot of guys. And he said, well, we had applications from everywhere. He said guys were doing recreations in their basement. Guys were making things up and going out and doing a high school game. He said we had tapes of every kind from everywhere. And he said, but. Uh, two or three things really stood out when we listened to your tape. He said, number one, you were applying for a major league job, and you took the time and the trouble to go to St. Louis and tape a major league game. And he said, number two, he said, I knew you had played. He said, I could tell that you knew the game. He said, even strategically and talking about different plays, why that play worked, why that play didn't, that you had played, and you had a good feel for that. And he said, number three, he said, you were – 
very young, and he said, it's a brand new team. He was my dad's age. And uh, he said, I just thought it would be good to, to get a young guy. And uh, he, his idea was to work for another four, five, six years. There wasn't a, a definitive number, but uh, he was looking at retirement. And he said, I can kind of, you know, show you the ropes, introduce you to people, bring you along. And he was true to his word, and he taught me a lot about the the fundamentals of putting together a, a major league baseball broadcast. And uh, he was a great teacher. He was a great, great uh, tutor, and uh, we uh, we got along great. And I obviously I tried to learn a lot from him, and hopefully I did. It was a time when basically you one person would do you know the innings, and the other person would do the innings, and there you know there wasn't a lot of talking back and forth. But he liked to have you listen there, didn't he? Yeah, that was. We'd go out and have pizza. This is spring training now. My first year, and once, twice a week, we'd <clears throat> go out and and have pizza and and talk. And uh, he said, "There's one thing that that you have to do." And he said, "That is concentrate." He said, "You have to listen to everything I say because I'm going to do the first two innings. You'll do the next two, and I don't want you repeating exactly what I said in the first two innings and your two innings." He said, "That would sound awful." And he said. Uh, I want you to develop your own style. I want you to do the game the way you want to do it. He said, don't think you have to do a, an imitation of me because if you try to imitate me, what we'll get is a crummy imitation of me. He <laughs> said, I want you to do the game the way you want to do it. And I thought, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. That sounds pretty good. So he uh, he also said, if you want to talk back and forth during your innings, we can do that. If you want to jump in when I'm on the air doing play-by-play, please do. He said, you'll see things that I don't. I'll see things that you don't. And we can uh, we can compress that into a, a nice, informative broadcast. But um, his basic rule was, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you, but I'm going to stay out of your way. When it's your three innings, I did three, four, and seven. When it's your innings... If you don't want to talk to me or you don't want to have a, a conversation, fine. If you want to, fine. But I'm not going to press you. I'm not going to, you know, jump on every other thing you say. I'm going to get out of your way, let you develop the way you want to develop and do the game the way you want to do it. And uh, I thought that was a, a pretty good strategy. Did you feel like when you think back that you basically – had your style pretty much from the start did you obviously you're going to refine things and learn things there's no question about Mm -hmm. that but did you feel like uh, pretty pretty early on that you had a handle on how you wanted to broadcast a baseball game that's a good question I I don't know I've never thought of that I think what what evolved was I over time you do evolve into what you do and it changes I mean there's going to be subtle changes i think we all go through that in every every aspect of of the business i'm sure you will say the same thing you've evolved in the way you do things from the time you started and uh, i think that was true with me and uh, you you get into a comfort zone you do you do it the way you feel most comfortable and where you can be the most informative Uh, obviously the thing i've always focused on is just absolutely detail um, describe the play that's that's the main job of of what we do is to describe the play on radio paint the word picture and be as accurate as you possibly can and there are several elements that follow that you have to 
Buddy always said, "Well, you have to you have to entertain." But he said, "If if you're going to be a real good radio baseball broadcaster, not only do you have to tell the audience what happened, now you have to tell them how it happened and why it happened." And uh, so, in other words, he was telling me, "You you not only have to be your play by play guy, you've got to be your own analyst." And aside from Bud, with rare exceptions. I've never worked with anybody who had played baseball that much. Certainly no uh, major league uh, player in the broadcast booth. Now, John Wathen very briefly worked on the radio side. Uh, Paul Splitorf, I did some of the Royals playoff games starting in, I think, 85. We did some of the Royals broadcasts together. But aside from that, I've never had an ex-player sitting beside me in the booth. So I've had to not only do the play-by-play, I've also had to analyze, not only tell them what happened, but tell them how and why. What was life for you like away from baseball? In your, you know, you're, in, you're a young man, you're in your 20s. Uh, the Royals got good pretty fast, so that's an aspect we don't really have to visit. You didn't have to do a lot of bad baseball. That would, that would come later. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what was it like... Uh, Moving to Kansas City, you know, as a young man, away from baseball. That was great. Uh, I was the same age as the players. In fact, quite a few of the players were older than I when I started. And so I developed very good friendships and relationships with them. And rather than hang out with the manager and the coaches who were much older, Buddy was my dad's age, and they would they would socialize, but he was great friends with uh, some of the Royals managers and a lot of the coaches and they'd go out and do their thing. And I'd go with the players and, and do our thing. And a funny thing happened though, after about 20, 25 years, why I got older, but the players didn't. (laughs) And all of a sudden (laughs) I'm where buddy was when I started. So, uh, and that changed and uh, so on. But, uh, it was great when I was that age and uh, away from home for the first time and uh, no worries in the world. And I had been to a couple of the uh, big league ballparks, but not many, but West coast, East coast, I got to see all those for the first time. So yeah, it was a, it was a great ride for a a lot of years. And uh, I had had uh, some wonderful relationships and friendships with the, a lot of the players, Marty Patton, who pitched for the Royals, he and I knew each other from high school, college, and junior legion summer ball because we had played against each other quite a few times. And, uh, of course, I knew Marty, and uh, we became really good friends. And there, But so many of the guys uh, who were basically my age uh, really formed a nice friendship and bond with. What did you like to do away from baseball as as a young man for like hobbies or things that uh, you know how did you spend your time well off season why I was involved in playing hockey I always enjoyed playing hockey when I got into college one of my buddies in college got me into playing hockey (laughs) it's a little bit late to start that but uh, I got to the point where I could play reasonably well so I'd play hockey in the winter time and and watch hockey, and I had chances to do some football, basketball, 
and hockey became Rick's called and asked me if I wanted to do some of the blues games on radio one year and I didn't. I wasn't I wasn't interested. And I remember Buddy saying, Well now you're gonna work your tail off for seven months with your with your baseball job. You're not gonna have any holidays off in the summer, you're not gonna have any weekends off. And he said, Your off season is your vacation, that's your time. He said, You've given the Royal seven months almost daily or nightly. And he said, you do what you want to do in the in the wintertime. He said, if you want to do other sports, radio, TV, I'm all for you. If you don't, I don't blame you because he didn't do it either. And uh, so I took that to heart, and I thought, yeah, that's it's a long grind. The baseball season is a grind no matter how you slice or cut it. And uh, it was nice to have time off and not have to worry about catching a bus or getting on an airplane or being at the ballpark at a certain time every every evening. So, uh it was a nice uh, a nice break from that, and I thought it was important to recharge the battery and uh, and get away from it. And then, boy, spring training comes along, and you're ready to go again, and that's always an exciting thing. The Royals, as I mentioned, got got became a good baseball team very quickly, and an incredible story for an expansion team, and they were competitive within just a handful of years. And uh, so you would go on a long run of, of doing – really, you know, important baseball, and they were good all the time. And, and this city really reacted to it well, and the attendance was great. And, and no doubt, especially in a time when there were very few uh, games on television, I mean, you were the eyes and ears of, you know, thousands and thousands of fans, and uh, that must have been a cool feeling. Yeah, for sure. And it was a, we had a nice big network all over the Midwest, and the Royals were good from year one. Actually, the Royals, it's easy to remember. In 1969, the Royals' first year, they won 69. 69 wins in 69, and that's how they, they launched that ship. And uh, fell, excuse me, fell back a little bit in year two. And then by year three, you could see that uh, Cedric Tallis, who was the general manager, was made some really good trades and almost exclusively with National League teams, which was very smart because National League was, quite frankly, better a better league than the American League at that time. And he got some really good players mm-hmm. out of the National League teams, and the Royals all of a sudden, after year three, and the A's were really good. The A's in Baltimore were the two best teams of that era. And all of a sudden, after or during year three, you could see the development of the Royals, and they were starting to chase the A's, and it only took another two or three years before they did chase them down and uh, go to the playoffs for the first time in 76. So, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty good from the very start. And it culminated with a world championship, uh, obviously, in 1985. And, you know, the, the Royals had had a lot of disappointment. They'd been a very good team, but uh, their postseasons had been filled with disappointment. There was, you know, wasn't multiple layers of playoffs then. And, you know, you, you won your division, you, you played somebody else, or, and, uh, you, know, you know, oftentimes it was the Yankees. And uh, mm-hmm. the big bad Yankees beat them. Th- so when, they get, when you got to 85 and the Royals had now been a championship-caliber team for a decade— and then finally hit the mountaintop, maybe in the most unusual of fashion, sort of like uh, you know the Kansas City Chiefs, maybe with falling behind all those times in the uh, in the super uh, in the playoffs last year. But what was it like when you know you went through the disappointments and you, you were friends with these guys, obviously, and then they won it all? Yeah, it was pretty sweet, obviously. And uh, as I say, you could really see it, feel it coming. And uh, Whitey Herzog had 
been named manager by that time, and he really put the team together beautifully. His uh, his managerial skills were second to none. Whitey was always, I felt, two or three innings ahead of the other manager. And uh, he was the type of guy who made every one of the 25 players on the roster feel like they were the most important guy on the roster. He had his starting nine, his starting eight in the pitcher, and then his bench guys, the the extra guys, and he might have had five or six of those, he would spend time with them and make them feel like, they're, hey, you're really a big part of this thing. And they were, he just had a great way of making everybody feel like they were a very important part of that team. And the one thing that Whitey could never get enough of was a left-handed pitcher in his bullpen. If he could have had 37 pitchers left-handed <laughs> in his bullpen, he would have. He was, because the Yankees, think about this, the Yankees had those great left-handed hitters at the time, and they had a, it seems like they had about 12 guys in the dugout who were all left-handed hitters. They'd run them out there in the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, pinch hitters. So uh, And he had the short porch at the old Yankee Stadium, too, so that's why the Yankees were so predominantly left-handed hitting. Uh, not only starting lineup, but also bench. And uh, Whitey always wanted to counter that with uh, with left-handed pitching out of the bullpen, and he could never get enough. But um, those were great rivalry. That was a great rivalry from the mid-'70s to 1980. And, of course, the Yankees prevailed three times, and Whitey always said if he'd had Rich Gossage in his bullpen, or Forster, any, uh, any guy who was a power pitcher out of the bullpen why the Royals instead of losing all three to the Yankees would have won at least two of those and uh, so obviously when they finally beat the Yankees in 80 it was uh, getting the monkey off the back but uh, people don't remember well few people don't remember the great games the Royals and Yankees played not in the playoffs necessarily but during the regular season my goodness they were they were classics they were some great great games during the regular season then of course most people remember the details of uh, all the playoffs, but uh, yeah, that was a very heated, a very great rivalry, Royals and Yankees, for uh, quite a few years. The Royals would become a different kind of franchise after they won the championship. They'd spend more money and bring stars in and things like that, but uh, still uh, an extremely relevant team, drawing incredible crowds and you know coming close to selling out the games. Uh, it was really a glorious time for the Royals. Yeah, you're right. They did start to spend a little extra money on free agents, but it's interesting. The free agents that they got usually didn't work out all that well. And uh, But that was true not only with the Royals, but with other teams. Once in a while, there was a free agent who really contributed to whatever team he happened to be on. But uh, the Royals were still very good for a, a long period of time. And then, of course, everything in sports seems to be in cycles. And then the Royals hit the the down skids uh, a little later on, starting what, mid early to mid-90s, I yep. guess, and uh, took a while to dig out of that. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. We're here with Michael Barber, the CEO and founder of Microlight Corporation of America, the world leaders in laser therapy. 
And Michael, tell us a little bit about your product. Our device is using a particular wavelength and power to reduce pain and swelling. My background is surgical lasers, but I've been involved with this particular device now for about the last 20 years, actually. And I know that it works because I've had it used on me (laughs) as well. And tell us about the relationship you have with your company in Canaway. It's what I call a strategic business relationship in that Canaway, the leader in the field of the cannabinoid systems and CBD oil, but our device used in conjunction with Canaway CBD oil gives a better pain relief outcome for the patient. And if you want to get that pain relief outcome like I did, you can reach their local representative, Sherry McCants at 515-208-6312. That's 515-208-6312. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Visions' goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. Hey everyone, this is Matt Llewellyn for the 23rd Street Brewery. Thank you so much for supporting local restaurants, especially through this pandemic. And you know what? We're almost through it. At the 23rd Street Brewery, we have brought in a few more tables. You can wear a mask if you want or not. It's your choice. Other than that, we're open 1130 every single day. So come see us at the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. We're here once again with Dr. Brad Woodle from Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. Springtime, good weather's finally here. People want to stay active, and it's your job to make sure that they can stay active, be active, and be healthy. Danny, we see a lot of not just weekend warriors, but people that every day are having that want to get back to activity. Whether you're starting with walking, jogging, or maybe that first 5K of the year, we want to help you out. We specialize in taking care of all ages from kids all the way to grandmas and grandpas, but absolutely specialize in getting you back to full function and keeping you in great shape. So in short, how do we go about doing that? The first thing is to schedule a consultation with one of our doctors and therapists so we can see how you move and how you're supposed to move. Based on our assessment, we can put together a short treatment plan and a set of goals to help you both feel better, function better, and most importantly, stay better for this year and many years to come. Learn more at asfca.com Danny. That's asfca.com Danny. Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. Well, it stormed. The last thing you want to mess with is dealing with it, but now you're stuck with dozens of people knocking on your door telling you everything they think you want to hear. Do not trust your biggest asset to a company that lies dormant until it storms, only to change their name and wither away after their substandard work is complete. Call Easton Roofing for a free roof evaluation. 913-257-5426. 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. 
Integrity matters. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Danny Matthews is our guest. He's a baseball Hall of Famer, obviously, Royals Hall of Famer. Accolades, uh, I think one of the lines is, uh, your dad told you if you, you hang around long enough and you, you do your job reasonably well, you're going to start to get a bunch of awards. And certainly you have, and you've deserved uh, every bit of them, Halls of Fame left and right as well. I want to ask you, when that transition came, the strike came, basically the Royals sort of decline as a team sort of coincided with uh, the baseball strike. They were having a very good season when the, the strike came. And then it would be a long stretch of, of non-competitive baseball. After all those years of winning and doing relevant games, how much of a challenge was it for you after really a couple of decades of good baseball to call bad baseball? I always felt, Danny, that uh, if the team wasn't real good, I had to be a little better. <laughs> so that was, that was my thrust when I would go to the ballpark every night and Actually, even though the team wasn't very good and you weren't going to win the pennant, why out of 162 games, well, there was going to be quite a few that were really good games, right. win or lose. And uh, so I would always go to the ballpark, hopeful that both teams played well. It was a very interesting game, obviously hoping the Royals would win, but even if they didn't and both teams played well and it was a good game, it was a good broadcast, why, hey, I had no control over over it. I didn't field the ground ball. I didn't throw a pitch. I didn't swing the bat. So I was beholden to what happened down in the field. So you try to make it as interesting as possible. You try to have some fun with it. Uh, and so that was my tact when the team wasn't all that good. I would show up at the ballpark hoping that both teams played well. Now, there were times when you go to the ballpark, one team would play really well and one team wouldn't, and the final score was 8-1. to one. Well, that wasn't a you know, exactly a classic. And then there'd be other times when neither team could get out of their own way in a game and the final score would be eight to six or something. And you'd have some fun with that because there were going to be some goofy things that happened, no doubt, but neither team played very well. But yeah, if both teams are playing well, why that's, those are fun to do. Obviously, by this time, you'd been doing it a long, long time. And, and at one point, uh, I think you maybe came back from a flight and you got stuck in traffic or something like that. And you thought about the fact that you might want to retire when you were 50 years old. Obviously, that didn't happen. But it was was that in any way, shape or form serious? Uh, you, I, I guess as you go through life, you have <laughs> some funny thoughts from time to time. But yeah, I thought after, you know, some long road trips and now it's the end of August and, you know, you're pretty well worn down by the long baseball season, Jane, you know, it might be kind of nice to not have to, you know, do 162 games this next year. And uh, I think Ryan Fever and I were talking about it one time, and I we decided that you shouldn't consider retirement either at the start of the baseball season or at the very end of the baseball mm-hmm. season right. for obvious reasons. So uh, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb, and I think we both agree to that, but uh, neither one of us has retired yet. Your style has uh, is one that uh, I just really love. It's it, very matter of fact. You do the details of the game. Uh, you don't often get very excited, but you get excited at the proper times. Uh, if anything has ever been criticized about your work, that for in some people's eyes, it's the fact that maybe uh, sometimes you should get a little bit more excited. I don't think that in any way, shape, or form. 
Uh, have you ever thought about what your style is and how people's reaction to it is? I know that uh, you enjoy the fans uh, at FanFest because that's a really the only kind of feedback you can get, and, and they love your work generally. But uh, uh, how, how do you feel about the way you present a baseball game? Well, as, as Buddy told me in, in the long ago, do the game the way you are most comfortable doing it. And, uh, yeah, I've heard, well, how come you don't get more excited? Well, how do you know how excited I am? <laughs> We're, we all show excitement in different ways, right? Right. And how does, you know, Sam know that I'm not excited? You don't, you don't sound excited. Well, I am excited. Now, sometimes if there's something really exciting, you'll know. And uh, I will be, and it will show. But, uh, you know, I can be really excited about something that may not sound quite like that. That's that's me. That's just my personality. That's my style, I guess. Uh, I When I when I played sports, um, I, I didn't get overwhelmed by, you know, something that happened that was very positive. And I, I didn't get really distressed and down about, you know, a bad game. And... I remember talking, I did an interview with Carl Yastrzemski a long time ago, and he said, in the long baseball season, to get through it, you can't get too up or too down. You have to have an even keel, and you'll make it. But he said, if you're sky high today and down in the dumps two days from now, hey, by the all-star break, you're going to be a mess. <laughs> so, you know, when you stop and think about that, there's a lot to that. No question about that. But after finally, after a lot of years of bad baseball, the Royals would uh, once again become relevant. And you obviously hung around for the entire ride of it. You're still doing it. Uh, are, are, did it make it extra rewarding for you that uh, maybe you you could have walked away at a, a couple of three points and, and finished in a time when the Royals had been bad for quite a long time? How rewarding was it when they started to be good again? Well, it was terrific, and you could see it coming. You could, you could see it. You could hear it. You could smell it. You, uh, yeah, from maybe two years before they won the World Series, and then that'd be one year when they got to the World Series, and the and the Giants prevailed. But the year or two before that, the Royals went from a team that you could beat them pretty easily. They make one mistake or two mistakes, the other team would jump all over it and you, you lose and you lost 93 or four or five games. Well, two years before they got to the World Series for the first time, during that season, the Royals were a lot more difficult to beat. And there's a big difference between being easy to beat and being hard to beat. All of a sudden, being very, very hard to defeat the Royals, you can see them improving in all areas. The next year, they were really, really good. I mean, they didn't make to the World Series, but boy, it was they were right on the brink. And then, of course, came the next two years. You play in the World Series, you lose that one, and then you play the Mets and you win it. But it was a process, and you could see the evolution beginning four, four and a half years prior to the night where everybody was jumping around at the ballpark in, in New York after having beaten the Mets in the World Series. But yeah, it was it was really fun just to see that that transition from not really very good to hey, you know what we're getting to be pretty darn good to now we're tough to beat and now we're winners and 
Yeah, that was a, a four, four-and-a-half-year process, which uh, was fun to watch. Just uh, before the Royals started to get good again, you get the ultimate honor uh, for baseball, the Ford Frick Award being named to the Baseball Hall of Fame in the broadcasting wing. That, that's an incredible honor. Uh, obviously, it's maybe one a year, not always even that, but uh, what was that like? What was it like to get up there in front of uh, all those uh, people at uh, a beautiful place like Cooperstown and, and get the ultimate honor that a baseball announcer can get? Well, before I went, and George Brett had gone in a few years before, mm-hmm. I asked him about the experience, and he said it will go, he said it'll be four of the fastest days of your life. It'll be four of the most exciting days of your life. And he said, if you can do it, slow it down and just ingest every bit of it that you can. And uh, I tried to do that, and uh, I think I did pretty well. I did go fast. <laughs> it was right, but uh, but uh, it was just full of great people, uh, incidents, conversations, events, uh, playing in the golf tournament with uh, Carlton Fisk and Whitey Ford. They were my partners. Wow. Uh, sitting around with uh, Harmon Killebrew, Johnny Bench at breakfast and hear them tell jokes and stories. And uh, and then to the day of the induction, which was a Sunday afternoon, and because Cal Ripken was one of the inductees, Baltimore and Cooperstown aren't that far apart, and a lot of people they had, they were judged to have the biggest crowd ever for an induction. They had 95,000 people, and it's an outdoor stage, and you could see people way, way off in the distance, maybe a half mile, and then there's a gentle rolling hill, and this is upper New York, which uh, you can see, and there were people at the very edge of that hill, and that was a half a mile away, and they said there were 95,000 people, and um, so then you have to get up and do your speech, and you're sitting there with 85 Hall of Famers behind you on the stage, and 95,000 people in front of you, and your family and friends, and it's a daunting experience. Tom Seaver introduced me, and we talked about it before the event, and he said, how do you feel about this? <laughs> I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what, I played college football, and there's a process where you go from Monday to Saturday, and the emotion, the excitement builds from Monday's practice until you hit the field on Saturday, and it's game day. And I told Tom Seaver, I said, it's game day. That's how I felt. <laughs> You have uh, always, for somebody who's in such a public position, you've always been a very private person. And I think that you probably are less known. I think people probably know less about you than they do about many other uh, famous people uh, in Kansas City or maybe anywhere else. It Was that just a, a personal choice of yours or did it just so happen that way? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's you know yeah it's fine I I don't need to be on camera on mic on stage every other day or night no I it's just you know I do what I what I do and thoroughly enjoy it I enjoy the fans I enjoy the listeners I get a lot of feedback from uh, uh, Royals fans all over the area uh, I people will 
sometimes recognize me when I'm out running errands in public, doing different things, and chat with them. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have this great desire to be on. Uh, I'm on plenty once, once baseball starts, and uh, I really don't need to keep reinforcing that. So, uh, and you're right, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty private, and that's my choice, I guess. And uh, I don't think uh, I'm all that exciting. If I, <laughs> I don't know what, what people would find exciting about me, unless I, you know, playing hockey and hit somebody in the lips with a shot or something. But uh, no, I, I just have have chosen to, you know be myself and uh, I think I'm friendly enough and I, I don't shun people and I think most people that I I get I meet get along with me fine and uh, yes. everything so yeah it's just one of those things I don't really think about it that much well now you've done this for over 50 years and you know some people mentioned Vince Scully and things like that uh you obviously went way past 50 years uh when do you, and you've been able to now tailor your schedule a little bit and not travel as much. And of course, last year was completely different and we hope we don't have to replicate that, <laughs> that again. But, uh, but, uh, when do you think about, you know, each year, like you say, you don't think about it right at the end of the year. You don't think it at the start of the year, but you got, you must think about it sometimes. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think everybody has a, you know, a plan in front of them, whether it'll work or not, or even eventually who knows, but, uh, yeah, you, you think about those things, and uh, the old story about this guy's day-to-day or week-to-week, why I think it's just season-to-season, season or probably day-to-day, day if you really want to get right down to it. But uh, no, just continue on until it becomes a, a burden, and you have to force it. And uh, But yeah, cutting back has really helped, as I say, at uh, 162 and, and making every trip is a grind. And it takes a lot out of you. And it's becoming more and more common. I'm sure you've noticed uh, broadcasters now are taking time off. And I think it's really important because you do need to get away from it for a bit, recharge the battery, relax, enjoy a little bit of the summer, which you don't have. Uh, You think about it, you go to spring training in late February, and you don't emerge from the baseball schedule until, until early October. And really, around here, I found that when I was doing all the games and I finally got to the off-season, that October was really the only quality weather-wise month that you had to enjoy some outdoor things. So uh, having regained some of the summer, and I think a lot of the other baseball announcers are beginning to realize that too, and there's more and more taking time off. Why it's, it's pretty nice to have some of those beautiful summer days and summer evenings for yourself. What do you feel like uh, you've you've brought to Kansas City? You've been such an important person here, and you've been you know the, the you've brought the stories of the Kansas City Royals to dedicated fans through good and through bad. Uh, what do you feel like your legacy is? Well, I would hope that people are comfortable inviting me into their environment, whether they're catching the game, maybe two or three innings while they're in the car, maybe they're out on their back patio on a summer night listening to the game, uh, where there's a lot of people that work nights and uh, they're in a shop, they have the radio on, your your company. They, and they have invited you into their environment. And so that's a compliment. And uh, if they enjoy your company and enjoy the game, why, that's all I could hope for. This podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing, 
presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Easton Roofing, where integrity matters. We hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Come back soon for something fresh and new. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.